morning, Chapel Hill. It's good to greet those of you who are here in person, those of you who are online. I'm Pastor Mark Toon. I'm COVID-free. I'm just fine. And it's really good to be able to be back with you uh, today. We look back on 2020 in the Toon family with a a real sense of gratitude, actually, because there were a lot of blessings that came out of that year. And I think the the greatest blessing might be the beautiful and brilliant and courageous daughter-in-law that we gained, uh, Deb. Uh, Deb is Brazilian, and uh, she came to the United States at the age of 19 not speaking English. Uh, That's a pretty remarkable adventure, isn't it? She became a nanny at a home. She started taking uh, English lessons at UPS, and along the way, she met a young man named Cooper, and they fell in love, and they got married, and they delivered to us our beautiful little COVID granddaughter, uh, Cecilia. But because of COVID... Uh, Deb has, uh, Deb's, grand, uh, Deb's parents have not yet been able to hold that baby in, in their arms. And Deb has not been able to return to Brazil. And it, it stinks. And obviously we are hoping for that day when everything is cleared up and she can return home, husband and baby in tow. But what if she couldn't? What if Deb was never able to return home to Brazil? What if she was forever separated from her family and her friends and all of the things that she longs for and is so familiar with? That is exactly what happened to a guy named Daniel in the book of Daniel. After King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians attacked and decimated Jerusalem, they kidnapped the brightest and the best of the young people and carried them back to their empire. Daniel was one of those guys. He was probably 16 years old at the time, maybe 17, and um, he was carried off to be assimilated into Babylonian culture. He was going to be re-educated so that he could serve in the court of the king. But in the very last verse of Daniel chapter 1, we read something actually pretty shocking. Here's what it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Why is that shocking? Because King Cyrus ascended the throne 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar. In in other words, Daniel never returned home. He never went back to his beloved homeland. He served under five different kings, under two different empires. He was an exile, a captive, a slave. And yet Daniel gained a position of incredible influence in this foreign land. 70 years of influence. One of the things I'm concerned about in these days is that we American Christians forget that we are exiles. We may love this land of which we are a part, and I think most of us do, but we are still exiles living here. This is not our spiritual home, and we forget it. But for the time that we are on earth, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to wield influence for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so how is it that we can be both good citizens of this nation, this land, this community, and yet better citizens of the kingdom of God? Daniel, I think, can teach us how to do this. And we are in a series that we are calling Subversive Leadership. And we're not talking about the anarchy that we witnessed in D.C. or in Seattle or in Portland. But we are talking about a wise and measured, courageous balanced life that blesses our community but never violates our Christian convictions. 
That is our call. That is what we are called to live like. One author put it this way, Daniel's character and conduct stood out because he was both respectful and resolute. He didn't conform to the pagan customs of the Babylonians, but he didn't act self-righteous, judgmental, or defensive either. He knew the goal, listen to this, he knew the goal wasn't to be right, it was to have influence. I think that's a very profound observation. Daniel has a lot to teach us in these tumultuous times. Tumultuous politically, tumultuous with the pandemic. I mean, we are in a time of real tumult. And today, he's going to teach us his first principle of, sub, of subversive leadership. He and his friends, as a reminder, have been conscripted into the king's service. They've been given the very best that the king has to eat from his table. They are being given the very best wine that the king has to offer from his table. They're being taught, they've offered the very best education that the empire has to offer. And we discovered last week they were given something else, didn't we? New identities. I actually think it's really important for us to touch back on that for just a moment. Let me remind you what we saw from last week in verse 7 of chapter 1. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. It was common practice for an invading, conquering nation to rename its captives. It was an act of subjugation. It was an act of humiliation. All of that was intended. We talk about identity theft these days. Well, this was real identity theft. Daniel and his friends had their Jewish names stolen from them. Names that gave honor to their God, Yahweh, they were taken away from them. And they were replaced with names that honored Babylonian gods and mocked these young men in ways that we don't understand because we don't know the language. Let me give you an example. Daniel's name means God is my judge in Hebrew. But Daniel was renamed Belteshazzar. It is a reference to the pagan god Bel. That was bad enough. But perhaps more humiliating for a 16-year-old young man, Belteshazzar was a girl's name. It was like they renamed Daniel Betty Lou. So we learned as kids that we really can't help what people call us, can we? Uh, There was a young man that went to our grade school, and he was tall, and he had a prominent kind of flat forehead and kind of funny-looking ears. We nicknamed him Herman, after Herman Munster on the TV show. And it it was cruel. It was humiliating. And it was shameful. But the more he objected, the more the name stuck. Daniel was renamed Betty Lou. And it is here, in this moment of humiliation, that we learn the first lesson on subversive leadership. Here it is. Pick your battles. Pick your battles. Interestingly, Daniel never protested these humiliating name changes. We know the, phrase, the, the, the saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, names will never harm me, but we know that's not true, is it? Words and names, in fact, do cause harm. They can be very painful. But we must choose how to respond to those insults. We can engage them, impose them, 
refute them. We can spend all kinds of energy defending our honor against these verbal attacks. Or we can keep our powder dry for another day, for a more important battle. And it strikes me that that is what Daniel did. Because I want you to notice the very next word after their names were changed, it's but. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself against, with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. In other words, Daniel did not take time, did not spend energy or effort protesting this humiliating name change. That was not the battle he was going to fight. But he resolved he would not eat the king's rich food. Cindy and I love eating at El Gaucho, but we do it very rarely because it is so pricey. In good Babylonian fashion, we have renamed it El Gaucho. But we have learned some tricks. So sometimes we will go and we'll have just an appetizer like escargot. It's one of our favorites. And then we will skip the $1,000 steak. And then we will have a dessert of a flaming variety like Bananas Foster. So we have snails and ice cream. It is the breakfast of champions. And such a meal is a good treat once or twice a year, but it's not a very healthy diet. We have no idea what kind of rich food the king offered Daniel and his friends. And I'm sure it would have put El Gaujo to shame. But for some reason, they decided this was the bridge too far. They didn't object in being trained in the new ways of their new country, in the new religion of their new country, learning all about that. They didn't object there. They didn't object to the uh, humiliation of being renamed. But to eat food that would defile them, as it was described, that would make them spiritually filthy in front of God, that was the battle that they decided was worth fighting. Maybe the menu included forbidden food like pork. Maybe the food had been dedicated to the, uh, the, the, their pagan gods. Sometimes that was done. We don't know what it was the reason. We don't know the issue. But for them, it went too far, and this was the battle that they chose to fight. One of the reasons that Christians don't have the influence upon our culture that we could have, that we should have, that it is intended that we would have, and Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. One of the reasons we don't have that influence is that we are too ready to fight every battle. We are too ready to react to every perceived affront against us. And believe me, I get it. I am by nature a bit of a fighter. I'm kind of pugnacious. I am kind of tend to be quick on the trigger, and it has gotten me in trouble in times past. In the early days of COVID, I was tempted to fight back, press back, push back against every governmental intrusion into our worship life. Fortunately, we are a church that shares authority, and more than once, my elders urged me to dial it back a notch, and so I did. The fact is, if every single incursion upon our life, our liberty, our worship, if every single incursion deserves a nuclear response, we might as well get rid of the DEFCON levels. Everything is DEFCON 1. For instance, even though the, the wearing of masks is controversial and politically charged and just irritating, 
We chose to encourage it because we think it is a precaution that is reasonable, and really we want to encourage more people to come back to church who might be still a little afraid. Masks were not the battle that we chose to fight. On the other hand, your elders decided that we would never tell God's people that they could not sing in worship, no matter what the government said. And so we picked our battle there. Not every issue is worth arming yourself, worth fighting for. But some are. And Daniel and his friends decided that this was the one. They didn't protest the name change that dishonored them, but they did resolve to defend the honor of God in what they ate. That's actually pretty impressive when you think about it. They were teenagers away from home for the first time, and yet these teenagers resolved to defy something that they felt would dishonor God. Wouldn't you be proud to hear that your university student away from home for the first time took that kind of a stand? I hope we are raising up those kinds of young men and women. Some Christians fight every battle. And they dilute their influence because no one takes them seriously. They are like the Christian that cried wolf. But some Christians refuse to fight any battles and they have no influence because they have no firm convictions and everybody knows it. Where do you tend to fall in that spectrum? We don't need Christian bullies, that's for sure. We've got plenty of bullies. But we do need Christians with the courage to risk it all for the right cause for the sake of Jesus. And Daniel and his friends were these kinds of men and worth paying attention to. But I think there's one more thing that they teach us in the story this morning that is very important. Here it is. When they picked their battle, they tried graciousness first. They tried graciousness first. Listen to more of the reading. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. You're putting me at risk, he said. He goes on. Then Daniel said, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. I want you to notice, first of all, that Daniel and his friends had developed a warm relationship with their boss. Did you see that? That is smart. We are told that they, they had favor and compassion in his sight. And so when the time came for them to take a stand, to negotiate, they were in a position relationally to do so. They said, come on, give us a chance here. Let us eat our own diet, our own food, and then just after 10 days, see what the results are. It is amazing what a gracious and initially gracious, respectful attitude can accomplish, isn't it? Even when we pick our battle, it doesn't require us to launch a full frontal assault. Sometimes influence is gracious. Sometimes influence is courteous, diplomatic even. 
The boys responded graciously, and they were given a chance. And here's what we read with, about the outcome. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, the chief eunuch brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters were in all his kingdom. Graciousness doesn't always work. Diplomacy doesn't always work, as we will see actually in coming weeks. Sometimes it ends up being thrown right back in our face, but it never hurts to try. And I think every Christian ought to try harder first to be gracious, to meet opposition with the Spirit of Christ who taught us to return hatred and mistreatment with grace and forgiveness and love. That's the counter-cultural approach to this stuff. I want to share one last thing. Last week I shared what I thought to be three, uh, three key words that, uh, that explained the, the, the rest of the book of Daniel. We find them in chapter 1, verse 2, and here's what we read. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. If you recall, it was the Lord who gave Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. King Nebi thought it was his doing, but in fact we discover, uh-uh, this was God's purpose all along. Everything that happened to Judah, everything that happened to Jerusalem, everything was with God's permission, God's purpose, God's plan. Well, that phrase, and the Lord gave, it appears two more times in chapter 1. Anytime you see repetition in the Bible, pay attention, because it is trying to make a point. It appears twice more. We find it when Daniel and his friends negotiated with the chief eunuch. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch. He gave that. And in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Here's the point of this chapter. Here's the point of the whole book. And the point that we need to drive home again and again and again. It was God, always God who was in the midst of their circumstances. He was guiding them, encouraging them, honoring them, promoting them, comforting them, quieting them, whatever was called for. It was always God who was doing this so that these young men might become a powerful influence for good upon the king and upon that nation. God has given. God has given this moment to us. And I'm not sure that we have grasped that call upon our lives yet. God has given us a chance to influence a world in the midst of turmoil, a world that is floundering and flailing a little bit. God has given it to us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world in this moment. And so I want to ask you, is it time for you to be recognized, time for you to take the right stand? What is the battle in your life that is worth fighting for in this moment? Perhaps it's a more personal one. Is it a, a faltering marriage that you need to address? Is it your friend's addiction that you need to courageously approach? 
Is it the unethical thing that your boss is asking you to do? Is it your own sexual purity? Or maybe, maybe the stand we're supposed to take is a more political one. Maybe it's a letter writing campaign. Maybe it's participating in a peaceful protest. Maybe it's running for office in your city. God has called his people to be leaven in this community, to be light, to be salt, to be persons of influence. And that's you. So what is the way that God is using you to influence change in our culture today? I want to pray with us that the Lord would stir in our hearts the reality that this is our call to be salt, to be light, to be leaven. That we would recognize it, receive it, and courageously embrace it. So join me in prayer. Lord, that is what I ask for this day. I ask that you would remind us that you have called us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, leaven in this community, agents of change, agents of influence. Help us to to believe that you have given this moment to us for that purpose. We're not along for the ride. We're not the flotsam and jetsam that are being tossed around on the waves of life. You have placed us in here as exiles, spiritual exiles in this time and place that we might be persons of influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so would you make us courageous to receive that call? Give us the wisdom to discern the stand that we must take. Give us grace to respond in a way that honors Jesus even as we are brave and true. And give us the courage that comes from knowing that it is you who have called us, you who will equip us, you who will empower us, and you, sovereign God, who will have your way in us, through us, or despite us if we choose not to be part agent to your mission. I pray that we would be agent to your mission, that we would be part of this thing, that we would we would bring hope and peace and joy at a time that is desperately needed. Lord, we pray especially for the coming inauguration. The book of Daniel reminds us that you, O God, are the one who raises up people into positions of power and you remove them from positions of power. And so we acknowledge that you raised up President Trump for a season. And now we acknowledge that you have raised up President-elect Biden for a season. And Lord, we pray that this administration would be sensitive to the prompting of your spirit. That you would surround our incoming president with godly and good counsel. And that, Lord, there would be a beginning of a healing in this land where some politicians have the courage to reach across the aisle in embrace. And Lord, maybe we can be a part of that in the way that we speak to those with whom we differ. We ask that we not be so much right as we would be influential for the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.